Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Chew on this statement for a minute. Shallow thinking about God leads to shallow worship. Shallow thinking about God leads to shallow worship. Let's read the first four verses in chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, in whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So we got two, two eras kind of here, or two periods in history. One is God speaking through his prophets. That's how he communicated. We see that from the very beginning all the way through to the coming of Jesus. And then the second era, or the second part, is that God speaks to us through his Son. Now it's important for us to understand that he's not going to speak any more than through his Son. We have his word, we have his truth, there's no Son 2 or Son 3. There's no addition here to the word of God. We have it completed, his speech is to us, and it's spoken through his Son. You know, we ought to linger maybe a little bit here on the idea that God is a speaking God. He is not, he is not silent. He doesn't sit on a shelf like a statue. He is active. He's alive. He's called the living God in the Scriptures. And he speaks to us. We have an entire book here that is inexhaustible, really, Because it's a living word of God speaking to us. So no matter how much we know of this word, we don't know it all. We don't have it all down. Because God continues to speak through his word. So in the last days now, he has spoken to us by his son. That's decisive. Everything from here on is this explanation of Jesus and God speaking, and then it's applied, how it's applied to our lives. So in Hebrews 1, chapter 2, I mean, (laughs) Hebrews 1, verse 2, look what it says here. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. So Christ has gotten the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. He, he owns it, he rules it, he governs it, he's sovereign over it, and he is creator, which the writer here is identifying Jesus is God. That's one of the identifications. If it says that Jesus is creator, and it says in the beginning God created, it's telling us that Christ is God. 
He's not half God. He's not part God. He is God. All God, his very nature, his very essence is God. Now that's different than the thinking of who Jesus is in various religions around the world. But it stands out that Christ is God. And so that's why he puts it here. He wants, he wants these readers to know in a time of persecution, these were Jews who had come to Christ or Jews who were kind of on the fence, they're not sure yet, and some of them were wondering, should we go back to the old system? Should we go back to the law? Should we go back to the prophets? Should we go back to the sacrificial system? Should, should that be where we live now? Is it worth the persecution for this name called Jesus? And they're struggling with that, some of these. And so the writer is writing to this church and telling them that Jesus is greater than everything. In fact, he is the fulfillment of that whole Old Testament system. So if you go back there, you have no forgiveness of sins anymore. That's cut off. That's done. No more lambs on the altar. That's over with. If you go back there, you've lost. Christ is the only way now. He is the only way to the Father. And he is greater than everything. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the high priest. He fulfills all of the law, even to the point of fulfilling the punishment for not keeping the law. Even though he kept the law perfectly, he fulfilled the punishment, the soul that sins shall die because of us. So he says, Jesus is creator here. You can't get any higher than that. You're not going to get it out of an angel. This church had some difficulty with angels. And so in this chapter, the writer is telling them that Jesus is the one who dispatches the angels out to do ministry. He's over the angels. The angels aren't over him. So he says he is creator. He is, he is God. But today we're going to enter into the, the, the coronation service of Christ here where he is installed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in majesty. So I want us to look at verse 3. That's where we're, going to, where we're going to camp today. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is one clause here. These four things are one clause. There's, there's one subject, and that's he. There's one verb, sat down. And there's one main clause of this verse. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So everything about these verses are telling us who Jesus is, and what he did. And this is the way you could really translate it. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. 
having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. So there's, there's one central clause here that is identifying to this church that's being written, this letter's written to, that Christ, this is who he is. And this is what he's done. And nobody else off the street has ever done anything like this. So let's look at the first one. Christ is the radiance of God's glory, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He is the radiance. He is the brightness. He is like the sunlight radiating from the sun. You know, there's, there's no time that the sun exists without its beams radiating out. And that's like Christ. Christ is like the sun radiating out. The rays of the sun are, are the extension of the sun. And that's how we see the sun, through the rays. And Christ is eternally one with the Father. He is not created. He was not made. He's radiating God's glory and God the Father out to us and to our world. That's why it's called, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. This is God in our presence. This is not some man off the street. This is not Joe Schmo out there. This is God who is in the flesh. He's, he's 100% man, and he's 100% God, and I don't get any of that, but that's the way it is. That's who he is. And he is radiating God into our world. He's standing forth. Uh, he's, he's God and he's standing forth in this world to us. He's alive. He is God. He is not an angel. That's important for this church to understand. He is not an angel. Because they are dealing with this whole system of Gnosticism that Doak talked to you about. And Christ isn't a part of any of that. He is greater than everything, and they need to know that. So he's, he's radiating God into our lives. He's the radiance of the glory of God. The word glory denotes a splendor. It denotes a brightness. He is splendor. He is majesty. He is a being of light. He has infinite perfections. I like that word, perfections, regarding Christ. That's a word that the uh, Puritans used, Jonathan Edwards used. God is, uh, Jesus is splendor. He's radiating the splendor of God into our world. Glory refers also to all in God that is bright and splendid and glorious. And that's the Son of God. He is all in brightness and splendidness and glory and majesty. You know, the minds of under the unbelievers, according to Corinthians second, second Corinthians chapter 4, the minds of unbelievers have been blinded to the truth of this. They can't see the glory of Christ. They can't see the glory of God. So they go after, we go after other glories. But when God... When we face Christ and see God in the face of Christ and the glory of God in the face of Christ, when that shield is taken off by the Holy Spirit, 
God's glory explodes then in Jesus. Okay, let's look at the second one. Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He bears the exact impress of divine nature and character. The person of the Son is the glory of the Father, shining forth with divine splendor. That's who he is. He is the same nature as the Father. He is the same essence as the Father. This was decided on centuries and centuries ago in the early church. Who is this Jesus? Is he part God, part man? They debated over that. They debated over that for a couple centuries or more. And they came to the conclusion, no, he is not part anything. He is God in the flesh. We don't want a Jesus who is any less God. If we had a Jesus that wasn't God, then we would not have the satisfaction of our sins taken care of on the cross. Because it's only God, my God, who died for me, as Charles Wesley said in his song, that can ever take my sin away because it's my sin who has offended God, not some guy off the street. So Jesus is the very essence of God, and these, this church needs to know that. They can't go back in Judaism. They can't go back to sacrificing lambs. Because if they go back, they have missed God who has come in the flesh. And we see that in John chapter 1. Jesus came, he came as Emmanuel, he came into the world, and he came to his people, and the people didn't know him, didn't know who he was. So in beholding the power and the wisdom and the goodness of Jesus, we behold the power and the wisdom and the goodness of God the Father. We see God in Christ. We see the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact impress of God's nature. So to see Christ is to see God. You're not seeing anything less of who Jesus is. Paul says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. To see what Christ is like, to see what God is like, we see Jesus. It is by Christ that the character and the glory of God is revealed to us, his people, and to the world. All right, let's go to the third point. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Why do you think this is included here? Could it be included because the writer wants this church and us to exalt in Christ and to understand our proper place 
in relationship to him. We are not Jesus. We are not God. And that's the sin of the garden. Adam and Eve wanted to be God. Satan wants to be God. He said to Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me. The very core of our sin is that I want to be God in charge of my own life. Two things that will keep us from entering heaven. One is if our sins are never forgiven. And two is if we just go out of existence, period. If we're going to have a future in the presence of God, two things need to happen from God. One is there has to be a purification for sins. And two is God has to preserve our existence. And the Bible says here that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, it's a little strange, I guess, to people of our scientific age. Because our worldview, in general, is a worldview of material existence. What I touch and feel and taste and smell That's what I believe is real. That's what I see my world as. The real stuff is what I can have in my hands. This is real. This is real here. And this stuff becomes the measuring rod of what is real in the universe. And the problem is, it has become our God. Everything we can taste and smell and feel and all of that, this has become our God and that's our worldview. And Hebrew says, no, 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 that's not the way it is. The foundational reality is not the material things that we can see and touch. The foundational reality is Christ and his word. What we think is real is in fact very fragile and will one day go out of existence. So what we hold on to is going to be gone and will be no more. It all hangs on a very slender thread. One word from Christ And everything goes out of existence. He upholds it with the word of his power. If he stops upholding it, there's no more existence. There's no more being. He holds it all together. There would be pure nothingness without his word. Now some of you probably remember in philosophy... In school, a man named Rene Descartes. You know, he's famous for that phrase, um, I think, therefore I am. But the problem is, the truth is, I think, therefore Christ is. 
Christ is the one who's upholding my brain, my mind, my heart, my lungs. It's own song we sang this morning. Talked about God being the breath in our lungs. I'm able to think because Christ is, not because I am. I'm able to think because Christ is upholding the universe. He is enabling me to think, to use my mind, to use my body, to use my brain. The only reason I think, in fact, the only reason I exist is because of Christ and not because of me. He is upholding it all together. If he steps back and says, I'm no longer upholding the universe, nothing. Everything is gone. So we must understand that that our being, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, our being is not the measuring point of philosophy and thought and life, but Christ is the measuring point. We have to understand that we are utterly and totally moment by moment dependent upon the will of Christ. Helga and I had a friend of ours that passed away this week. <clears throat> he was a civilian employee that I worked with in the Army. Um, he was in his 50s and uh, still working. And he, um, he just died at home this week. He was not married, and they found him the, uh, the next day when he, he didn't report to work, didn't come to work. Um, there's a point in time once to die, and then the judgment. Paul's time was this last Wednesday. But praise God, he knew the Lord. He's rejoicing. Paul had so many physical issues. He had spina bifida. He was legally blind now. He couldn't drive anymore. Uh, still working. Had to take a bus to work. He, he was, his parents were told when he was young that he wouldn't live very long. Um, he grew up. He was able to walk. Um, he is an extremely intelligent man. He got a uh, full four-year sc- academic scholarship. Um, don't see a lot of those <laughs> around. I didn't even come close to anything like that. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. But, I mean... Our breath hangs on a thread. Our heartbeat, it's all Christ holding us by the word of his power. And you know, that's great news. That I'm not held by anything of this world and its power. I am held by the word and the power of Jesus Christ. So today... as Christ upholds us by the word of his power, we are to worship. Everything, everything is shot through with God. 
Everything about our lives is permeated with the presence of the living God. So the challenge for us this morning is that we won't just sing along with the modern song of human self-sufficiency, but we will see the world through the eyes of the living God and see that ultimate reality is Christ. And today we see him sitting at the right hand of the majesty. So to Jesus we owe our purification and we owe our existence this morning. Let's go to the last one. Christ made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty. You know, sin is a reality. We know that. It's not just an isolated thing. It's not just deeds we do. Sin is a power. It moves the heart. It moves the will. It moves in the world. It takes hold of a person. It has a grip on every human being. It's a horrendous thing. It's an awful thing. It's a horrid thing. Everybody in this room is infected by it. It's like a disease and it's lethal. We will all die physically because of it. God has not willed that part of the curse to go away. We still have to go there, as Paul did this week. And it's all because of evil. It's all because of sin that the body deteriorates. It's universal. And it's horrendous. Turn in your Bible to Hebrews 3, if you would. We're going to stay in Hebrews. Let's start with verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's go to verse 19 first. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The very root of sin is unbelief. Sin flows from this lack of trust in God. If we had perfect trust in the wisdom of God, we would not go against him. So the foundation of every sin, every sin, is that I don't trust God. 
I don't trust him. It's unbelief. Then he says in verse 18, we're going to work backwards. Verse 18 says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedience? God's will is obedience. And we have gone against his will. So unbelief leads to disobedience. So this should, this, the thought here flows from verse 19 upward. Unbelief leads to disobedience. And the result of that is verse 17. And with whom was he provoked or angered for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? God is angry with sin. He hates sin. He's grieved by sin. He's provoked by sin. He hates sin. And we in the 21st century don't like to hear about God's anger. The world likes to hear about God's love and mercy. And rightly so. And both are true. You know, back in the 18th century or before, they talked about God's anger. The cross itself is an outflow of the anger of God as well as the love of God. Two things happened on the cross. God's love poured out on us and his anger poured out on his son because of our sin. So the cross is the expression. It's expression of God's anger and it's his incredible mercy and grace toward us who are sinners. We are sinners God is angry with sin. It's a huge offense against God. We are bent that way to sin. We're rebellious against God. We commit treason against God and His authority. And it can never be taken lightly. Sin is terrible. It is a reality of this world that permeates the world. And we see all the consequences of that and God is angry at that sin and his holy anger is what makes purification for sins absolutely necessary no purification no propitiation for the anger of God Without Christ, we'd be in deep, deep trouble. But in Christ, we have the mercy of God and we have the anger of God shown on the cross. So what is the link? What is the link between making the purification of sins on the cross and being seated at the right hand of the majesty? Look at these words here. Let's go back to chapter 1. You have the words, we have the words uh, in, verse, in verse 3, after making purification for sins, or having made purification for sins, or made purification for sins. These are little words, but they have tremendous meaning 
And the point is that Jesus is not now making purification for sins. He is not going to make purification for sins for some time in the future. That he has already done the work. He has made purification for sins. It's past, it's done, it's over, it is finished. And now we see his enthronement. Because he's made purification for sins, and because he who he is, his perfect work, no flaws, no gaps, all over, he is entitled now to sit at the right hand of the Father. And I want us to feel today by some verses we're going to look at, I want us to feel today that this is once for all. This is made once. The writer to the Hebrews expresses this over and over and over, that this is over. So he's telling these people who are sacrificing lambs all the time and, and, and uh, bulls, they're sacrificing these animals that Jesus did this once for all and it'll never have to happen again. It never needs to happen again. It's perfect, it's effectual, it's exactly what we need. The purification for sins and it's once for all. So let's look at this purification. Turn if you would to Hebrews 9. Let's look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the goat of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once for all, he shed the blood, takes the blood into the presence of God the Father, and secures forever an eternal redemption. The bulls couldn't do that. (laughs) The sheep couldn't do it. Christ does it with his own precious, effectual blood. Okay, stay in chapter 9. Let's go to verse 26. We'll do, start with 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. So that's what happened in the old system. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. It could not put away sin. Only Christ can do that. 
so that sin will no longer be counted against those who are in Christ. And this work is done. It's over. It's past. It's once for all. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His body, his blood, his life, he paid for the bride, the church. The cost to make us pure. We should linger on Isaiah 53 and just just stay in Isaiah 53 and just wallow in Isaiah 53 and just meditate on Isaiah 53. The covenant that he made with us cost him his own blood to make us a pure people. And his blood, as Peter says, is a precious blood. It's effectual. It's a finished work. It's a complete work. It's a full work putting away our sins once for all on the cross. But that's not all. Look at verse 27, still in chapter 9. Verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are earnestly or eagerly waiting for him. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. And then go to verse ch- chapter 10. Let's go to verse 10. And by, <clears throat> and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One offering once for all, purchased for us our sanctification, our growth in grace, our purity, our being set apart. And we see that, and we'll see that a little bit later here, right here in Hebrews. Let's go to verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered, let me start. But when Christ had offered for a single sacrifice for all time, a single sacrifice for the sins. Sorry, my glasses are giving me trouble. <laughs> let me start over here. Let me start over with verse eleven. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And let's go to verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I love this verse. I love this verse because it's present and it is past. It says here, by a single offering, him, he died on the cross, 
by that offering, he perfected for all those who were in Christ, perfected for all time, those who are in Christ are those who are being sanctified. God looks at us, he sees perfect beings. And then he acts in our lives to make that happen as we grow in grace, in the knowledge of God in this lifetime. It's a beautiful picture that God, what he has done in our lives. He says, I see you as perfect because you're in my son You're connected to my son in his finished work. He is perfect. Everything he did was perfect. Therefore, you are also in my eyes. So when our friend Paul passed away Wednesday, was he perfect? Yes and no. When he met God, yes. When he, God saw him before he passed away, yes. Was he living perfectly? Probably not. Like all of us. But we're growing. We're growing in that grace. And Christ purchased that for us. He purchased that standing for us on the cross when he purified us of our sins. So he is to be exalted and honored today at the right hand of the Father for his sin-bearing work as it was perfect. So all our worship of the risen Christ is a reflection of the sufficiency of the death of Christ. Shallow thinking about Christ leads to shallow worship of Christ. Death that covers and cleanses and removes all the sins of us today who trust in him for their salvation and sanctification is the perfect death and the perfect sacrifice and the perfect life. God gave his son to die for our sins so that his anger, God's anger could be removed from us and that our sins could be forgiven, which brought about the anger. He gave us a covering. He gave us a cleansing. He gave us a forgiveness. He removed sin and guilt and curse. And that's what the cross is all about. So the resurrection and the enthronement of Christ to God's right hand gives us confidence. Gives us confidence in the hour of trial, in the hour of death, that the purification of our sins is sure, is real, is sufficient, is finished, is over, and good enough to bring us into the throne room of the living God where Paul is today, worshiping. Worshiping with many others over the centuries around the throne of God. Because of the blood of Jesus, that famous word on the cross to tell us die, it is finished. We are being sanctified. Paul says sin no longer has dominion over us. We fight it, we battle it, we, we struggle with it, but it doesn't own us any longer. 
Our Heavenly Father looks upon us as a holy people, Christ's holy bride. We are accepted and perfected because of Jesus Christ. If we would live in that triumph, what a life we would live. So what's the application, you know? Messages have to have applications, right? How does this apply? Well, that's one application I just gave. But here's the big application. The final, the final slide. I think it's the final slide we have. And the final application is worship. That's what we are to be about today. You know, it's interesting in chapter 1 here, there is no command to do anything. This is all about Christ and worshiping Him and seeing who He is and seeing what He's done. That's how He starts the letter. But if you go to chapter 2, the first word you should have in your translation is therefore. Chapter 2 of Hebrews. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now remember, when they got this letter, there were no chapters, there were no uh, headings, probably no punctuation here. They're just reading this letter. So he ends with, with he ends with, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 1, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet? And they are, are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are the inheritance, who are to inherit salvation? And all that coronation of Christ, and he says, therefore, you must pay close attention to what I just said in chapter 1. Because if you don't, you will drift. John Piper has a good illustration. You know, if if you drop a leaf in a river, the leaf doesn't do anything but drift. I mean, it doesn't move on its own. It doesn't have to do anything. So if we don't, do, if we don't pay close attention to chapter 1 and Christ and what he did and dig into that deeper and deeper, we will just drift in this life. When in reality, we are to worship the living God. Let's pray.